It should almost go without saying that someone such as myself who loves Halloween also loves horror movies. In fact, I used to do a podcast that focused exclusively on horror films, particularly the Forgotten Obscurities. And every horror fan that's interested in the esoteric side of the genre eventually becomes aware of the Guinea Pig series. Their reputation precedes them. They're often mentioned as some of the most depraved films ever committed to tape. The Guinea Pig series has an aura about it, and over the years it has developed an almost urban legend quality to it, to the point that it becomes difficult to separate fact from myth and rumor. Much of the information floating around about these films is inaccurate, and while the oft-repeated lore of the guinea pig films may be titillating, how much of it is actually true? Welcome to Mount Molehill, a place where even the smallest mysteries become mountains. I'm Chris, and this week I'm delving into some of the controversies surrounding the guinea pig horror films. This story involves copycat killers, famous Hollywood actors, snuff films, the FBI, and a healthy dose of hobby drama. The guinea pig films. Are they real snuff films? Did they inspire real murders? And did a phone call from Charlie Sheen launch an FBI investigation? Let's make a mountain out of this molehill. This whole thing started with one man, Satoru Ogura. Ogura set out to make a series of films that would push the boundaries of bad taste. He wanted to create the most vile films imaginable, and decided that the best way to do that would be to create a series of simulated snuff films. Ogura has no credits to his name on IMDb prior to Guinea Pig, so presumably the start of the series is the start of Ogura's career in film. After wrapping pre-production for the first entry in the series, 1985's Devil's Experiment, Ogura approached horror manga provocateur Hideshi Hino, author of Hell Baby and Panorama of Hell, seeking a collaboration. Hino was impressed with Ogura's ideas and quickly wrote a script for the second film in the series, 1985's Flower of Flesh and Blood. The first two entries were filmed back-to-back -back in 1985. Devil's Experiment, directed by Ogura and distributed by Orange Video House, was released in 1985 and sold very well on the video market. The Hino-directed Flower of Flesh and Blood was released soon after to capitalize on the success of Devil's Experiment and to keep the guinea pig momentum going. The runaway success of Devil's Experiment is due not only to its effects, which are quite convincing even today, but also because of its simulated snuff aesthetic. The original release of Devil's Experiment had no opening titles, no credits, and nothing else that would otherwise identify it as a commercial production. The marketing material claimed that Devil's Experiment was in fact an actual snuff film, and the commercial viability of these tapes was immediately apparent as Flower of Flesh and Blood was a top 10 video store bestseller in Japan during the first two months after its release. This isn't just among straight-to-video films, either. Flower of Flesh and Blood was even outselling most of the major Hollywood releases for two months in a row in Japan. After the release of Flower of Flesh and Blood, the guinea pig videos began to take a new direction. The third installment, 1986's He Never Dies, directed by Masayuki Kasumi, 
was still extremely violent, but it eschewed the pseudo-snuff feel of the first two installments for a more traditional narrative, and even introduced comedy into the mix. He Never Dies, along with the release of a behind-the-scenes making-of documentary soon after, put to rest any lingering concerns in Japan over whether or not Devil's Experiment and Flower of Flesh and Blood were authentic snuff films. The Guinea Pig series continued to find success with the release of the fourth installment, 1986's Devil Woman Doctor, written by Ogura and directed by Hajime Tabe, and an accompanying feature on the making of the film. Devil Woman Doctor is by far the most comedic entry in the Guinea Pig series. Devil Woman Doctor is often listed as being the sixth installment in the series, and it is even listed as such on the Wikipedia page for the Guinea Pig franchise, where its placement in the series is swapped with 1988's Mermaid in a Manhole, and Devil Woman Doctor is erroneously listed as having a 1990 release date. This likely stems from some incorrect information on the now-defunct guineapigfilms.com site that claimed to have received production information on the series from producers in Japan, which listed the production date for Devil Woman Doctor as 1990. Based on my research, this cannot be the case. For one thing, the Orange Video House release of Devil Woman Doctor is distinctly labeled number 4 on the box art. There are also some statements made by director Hideshi Hino, which we will get into in a moment, that further support Devil Woman Doctor as the fourth entry. After the release of Devil Woman Doctor, the rights to the series were sold by Orange Video House to Japan Home Video, and again, things get murky. Japan Home Video did not continue to number the entries in the Guinea Pig series, so there is a bit of confusion regarding the fifth and sixth films, Android of Notre Dame, and Mermaid in a Manhole. It seems as though both films were completed in 1988, but Android of Notre Dame did not get released until 1989. Android of Notre Dame is often called Guinea Pig 5, but that likely comes from the confusion about Devil Woman Doctor's placement as the sixth entry. My copy of Android of Notre Dame has the number 5 during the title sequence, but it's unknown to me if that same title appeared on the original VHS. Whatever the case, Android of Notre Dame, written and directed by Kazuhito Kuramoto, and Mermaid in a Manhole, written and directed by Hideshi Hino, would be the last two proper releases in the Guinea Pig series. Both of these films continued the departure from the roots laid down by Devil's Experiment and Flower of Flesh and Blood, and employed a mixture of traditional narrative and extreme gore. Up to this point, the guinea pig films had achieved a lot of underground notoriety but were relatively unknown to the mainstream. This all changed when the films became linked to a series of brutal child murders in Japan. On July 23, 1989, 26-year-old Tsutomu Miyazaki was arrested after abducting a small girl in a park, convincing her to strip nude, and photographing her. When Tokyo police searched Miyazaki's apartment, they found evidence linking Miyazaki to the murders of four girls between the ages of four and seven from August 1988 to June 1989. They also found 5,736 videotapes containing hentai, anime, and horror films. Among those tapes, allegedly, was Flower of Flesh and Blood. 
The otaku murders, as they would come to be called, otaku being a negative Japanese term for people with obsessive interests, created a moral panic in Japan. There was a public outcry and many in the media opined that the violent movies that Miyazaki consumed, such as the guinea pig films, were responsible for creating a monster. The Tokyo Metropolitan Government considered putting restrictions on the entertainment industry due to the high profile of the otaku murders, but ultimately this did not come to pass. It is also often claimed that Miyazaki went as far as to reenact one of the murders seen in Flower of Flesh and Blood, but in an interview with Vice in 2009, Hideshi Hino put these rumors to rest, saying, A video from the Guinea Pig series was discovered in his room, but it was Guinea Pig 4, a video I had nothing to do with. This statement clarifies a few things about the Guinea Pig series. First, it establishes that Mermaid in a Manhole is not the fourth entry since we know that Mermaid was written and directed by Hino, and here he is saying he had nothing to do with Guinea Pig 4. Second, it establishes that none of the real-life otaku murders were reenactments of the guinea pig films because none of Miyazaki's crimes match up with the events depicted in Devil Woman Doctor, the only guinea pig film found in his collection. The unwanted notoriety of the guinea pig series resulting from the Miyazaki case caused a Japan home video to halt the impending release of the seventh entry in the series. The film, Lucky Sky Diamond, was eventually released in 1990, albeit without the guinea pig label. Once again, Satoru Ogura served as producer, and the film was written and directed by Izo Hashimoto, and follows the tone of the previous four films. In 1991, Ogura created a sort of greatest hits compilation using previous footage from the films in the guinea pig series. Slaughter Special 1991, as it was named, is the final video to bear the guinea pig label. But it's not the end of our story. In fact, things only get weirder from here. While the guinea pig films had become notorious in their native Japan after the otaku murders, it wasn't until copies of the movie started making their way outside of Japan that they began to take on an urban legend quality. In 1992, a lawyer in Sweden came into possession of a copy of Flower of Flesh and Blood and reported it to the Swedish police. In their ensuing investigation, Swedish police sent the tape to a medical examiner who initially was unable to determine whether or not the film was real. Flower of Flesh and Blood made headlines again in 1992, this time in Great Britain when 26-year-old Christopher Berthode was arrested for importing snuff films into the country when he ordered videos of Flower of Flesh and Blood, Infant Brain Surgery, and Faces of Dissection from Blackest Heart Media. British authorities quickly determined that Flower of Flesh and Blood was not actually a snuff film, but to them, it didn't matter. British authorities stated, this is not an Asian girl alive being murdered, but something that is so well simulated that that is the impression it creates. Berthode was found guilty, but given that Flower of Flesh and Blood was not actually a snuff film, authorities opted to fine Berthode 600 pounds in lieu of imprisonment. On October 5, 1996, TCI of California, the then owners of the San Francisco cable TV system, began receiving complaints that a snuff film had been aired on the Channel 53 public access program, The Pain Factory. The culprit, 
once again was Flower of Flesh and Blood, and after a brief hubbub in the local media, once again everyone realized that it was not an authentic snuff film. And at this point, the whole world should have been aware that the guinea pig films were not real, and yet, as Unearthed Films attempted to release the guinea pig series officially for the first time in the U.S., they still ran into some issues. Stephen Biro, co-owner of Unearthed Films, stated that he went through a lot of trouble to find a company that would press the DVDs. Biro would send the guinea pig masters to a DVD company and inevitably have the masters return to him with an apology from the DVD company explaining that they would not be able to do the transfer. Biro stated that even the company that pressed the DVDs for the infamous Faces of Death and Traces of Death series would not do it. Fortunately, Unearthed Films was able to find a company that would press the DVDs, and the Guinea Pig series finally got a proper U.S. release in 2002. But these incidents, outlandish as they may seem, are not even the strangest chapters in the Guinea Pig saga. And if you don't believe me, just go ahead and Google Charlie Sheen's snuff film and see what comes up. You'll see a bunch of short articles like one on uprocks.com titled About That Time Charlie Sheen Thought He Watched a Snuff Film and Started an FBI Investigation. And you'll also see Reddit posts like one that says Today I learned that Charlie Sheen mistakenly thought he had viewed a snuff film in 1991 and promptly started an FBI investigation into whether or not a real murder had occurred. And this is how the story is usually presented. Charlie Sheen possibly under the influence, watches a guinea pig movie, specifically Flower of Flesh and Blood, and calls the FBI, which launches a full-blown investigation into the authenticity of the guinea pig films. Even the famous debunking site Snopes.com presents the story in this fashion by way of a 1994 article in the San Francisco Chronicle that claims, The FBI confiscated Sheen's tape and proceeded to investigate all involved. But is that how things really went down? It's honestly almost impossible to tell. And in order to understand why the story gets so murky, we need to travel back in time to the early 1990s, a time before the internet was widespread in American households, a time when bootleg videotapes of obscure films were worth their weight in gold in certain circles. A time when underground film magazines competed to be their readers' first and only source for the latest and gross-out shot-on-video schlock. And there are three such magazines at the center of this whole Charlie Sheen guinea pig controversy. Deep Red, headed by Charles Chaz Ballin, Film Threat Video Guide, published by Christian Gore, and Blackest Heart, run by Sean Smith which is the same company that sold Christopher Berthode those tapes that got him in trouble in the UK. It's important to remember that VHS tapes used to be very expensive, sometimes costing between $50 and $100 when they were brand new. And even after eBay hit the scene, it was still difficult to find certain tapes that were in high demand. The only ways to get one's hands on films outside of the mainstream were knowing someone that had a copy or ordering a bootleg tape. And bootleg tapes were risky because there was no guarantee that the quality would even be good enough to watch. 
and magazines played a significant role in helping underground film aficionados of the time acquire these bootleg tapes. There were more mainstream publications at the time that focused on horror films such as Fangoria and Famous Monsters of Filmland, but they focused mainly on popular American films. Magazines of the bootlegging ilk provided access to more obscure films that would have been otherwise nearly impossible to get a hold of. Japanese horror, Hong Kong Cat 3 movies, rare uncut versions of films that hadn't been officially released. And there was fierce competition between magazines to obtain and sell films that their rivals didn't have, and, at least when it comes to Deep Red, Film Threat, Video Guide, and Blackest Heart, there was apparently no love lost between them, and it wasn't uncommon for editorials openly badmouthing the editor of a rival publication to grace the pages of one of these three magazines. In issue 4 of Film Threat Video Guide, David E. Williams says of Deep Red's Chaz Balin that He at least appeared to be one of us. With Deep Red, Balin was a champion of horror film. He appeared to be a modern-day Forrest J. Ackerman, consumed by his love for the genre. Obviously, this was just a lie. By pirating their legally available works, Balin is, for eighteen ninety-five a tape, grinning as he f***s these people over. In issue two of Blackest Heart, an article by Sean Smith and Timothy Patrick says of Film Threat Video Guide's publisher, Hypocrites suck. Christian Gore swallows. As the hot slides down Gore's throat, we'll update you on what a f***ing prick he is. Why do we have something against him? Because he's a f***ing prick. Gore is a big f***ing crybaby who stabs people in the back whenever he can't get his way. Well... We stab in the front, motherfucker. And it is exactly this enmity and the self-aggrandizing impulse to one-up competitors that makes it difficult to determine how Charlie Sheen came into contact with the Flower of Flesh and Blood tape in the first place. Because each faction gives a slightly different version of events. Chaz Ballon's version goes like this. He obtained a copy of Slaughter Special 1991 and became enamored with the series. He became an outspoken evangelist for the guinea pig films and the main distributor of guinea pig films in the U.S. In 1991, one of the Deep Red staffers asked Ballon to put together the most disgusting video he could muster as a special birthday present to be screened to a group of friends at a weekend get-together. Ballon compiled a tape of horror's greatest hits for his friend, and the opening segment on the tape was Flower of Flesh and Blood. The tape was a smash hit, and Balance compilation video began making the rounds in the East Coast tape trading scene. Charlie Sheen saw Flower of Flesh and Blood at a party by way of Balance compilation tape. The Film Threat Video Guide's version of events is slightly different. According to an article in issue 3 of Film Threat Video Guide written by Rowdy Yates, Adam Rifkin obtained a copy of an unspecified guinea pig film that was presented to Rifkin as a real snuff film. Doubting its authenticity, Rifkin watched the film with Sheen and neither of them were able to satisfyingly explain how the effects in the film could have been achieved, so they reported it to the FBI. Blackest Heart's version is significantly different from the other two. They claim in an article written by Sean Smith and Timothy Patrick that appeared in issue 2 of Blackest Heart that Christian Gore of Film Threat Video Guide wanted to distribute the guinea pig films in the U.S. He bought a copy of the film from Chaz Ballin, 
But when Gore discovered that he wouldn't be able to obtain distribution rights for the film, he gave a copy of Flower of Flesh and Blood to Charlie Sheen and told him that it was a real snuff film and that he should report it to the FBI. The idea being that if Film Threat Video Guide couldn't distribute the film, no one else should be able to either. So which version of events is true? Now in my research, I was never able to find any primary sources from Sheen himself. It seems that despite his penchant for running off at the mouth, he has never publicly commented on the guinea pig incident. There was an article titled The Snuff Film, The Making of an Urban Legend, written by Scott Aaron Stein that appeared in the May-June 1999 issue of Skeptical Inquirer that stated, The incident made headlines, though, and was even spotlighted on ABC's News Magazine 2020. I spent quite a bit of time trying to track down the episode of 2020, but unfortunately, ABC has not done a great job of cataloging old episodes of the show. I reached out to Scott Ehrenstein and asked if he had ever seen the episode of 2020 in which the Charlie Sheen guinea pig incident was covered, or, if he hadn't, where he had first heard about it. His reply was this. Honestly, I don't recall, but it seems to me numerous other articles detailing the controversy at the time referenced the 2020 interview I mentioned. Sorry I couldn't be of more help. And he's right. I did find other sources mentioning Sheen's appearance in an episode of 2020, but none of them predated Stein's article in Skeptical Inquirer. The only link between the guinea pig films and ABC's 2020 that I was able to find that predates Stein's article was an editorial written by Chaz Ballin in issue 7 of Deep Red. However, this article says that it was the otaku murders that were featured on 2020, not the Charlie Sheen debacle. So it seems as though the Charlie Sheen guinea pig 2020 appearance is the result of a game of magazine article telephone. And I was also unable to track down the purported episode of 2020 that features the otaku murders, so until I can find evidence that either 2020 episode exists... I'll have to consider them apocryphal, just a couple more of the many rumors that have been repeated time and time again since this whole incident occurred. So since we don't have a statement from Mr. Sheen himself, the only sources we do have are from others that were purportedly involved. In a letter from Chaz Ballin dated April 5th, 2002, published on the guineapigfilms.com website, he reiterates his version of events regarding a compilation tape he made for a friend making its way to Charlie Sheen via the East Coast tape trading scene. And contrary to the 1994 San Francisco Chronicle article quoted by Snopes.com that states, The FBI confiscated Sheen's tape and proceeded to investigate all involved, including Charles Ballin, an early distributor of the film. Ballin said, the only semi-direct contact I ever had during the aftermath of this dulling debacle was a call from the Red Staffer I sent the tape to, warning me of an impending call from the FBI who were investigating the video as a real snuff film. Police. Never got a call. Ever. I lost interest immediately and chuckled often as the shitstorm soon lost its momentum. Also of note on guineapigfilms.com is a section quoting the Japanese cinema encyclopedia by Weiser and Weiser that says that Charlie Sheen did not, in fact, call the FBI. Rather, Sheen contacted the Motion Picture Association of America, who then contacted the FBI. 
FBI agent Dan Codling informed the MPAA that the films had already been independently investigated by Japanese authorities and the FBI, and that both agencies had determined that the guinea pig films were completely fake. But back to how Charlie Sheen actually got the tape. We have Chaz Ballin's version involving a compilation tape circulating through the tape trading network. We have Film Threat Video Guide's version that the tape was given to Charlie Sheen by director Adam Rifkin. And we have Blackest Hearts version which claims that the tape was sold by Chaz Ballin to Film Threat Video Guide's Christian Gore, who then gave it to Charlie Sheen. Each account is quite different from the other two. And the question becomes, how does someone coming at this over 30 years later begin to untangle it? There are still so many questions left unanswered, and the number of people who could answer those questions is vanishingly small. Chaz Ballin passed away in 2009, and Sean Smith, by all accounts, retired from public life in 2019. Which leaves just one person involved, Film Threat Video Guide's Christian Gore, who would be able to shed some light on this whole affair. Now up to this point, I have been calling him Christian Gore because that's how he was credited in the Film Threat video guide. But you may know him as Chris Gore, writer, director, author, podcast host, and former contributor to G4's Attack of the Show. Well, what's interesting about the Charlie Sheen guinea pig video uh, FBI debacle is that I'm the one that got him the videotape. That's the voice of Chris Gore, who was generous enough to take some time out of his day and talk to me about this whole fiasco. And the first question I had about the whole thing is, what exactly were the contents of the tape? So there, there's also, in my research, two versions going around about the contents of the tape that Charlie Sheen watched. One version is that it was sort of a compilation tape put together by Chaz Ballin of Deep Red that it just included footage. And the other version is that it was just, you know, a, a bootleg duplicate of an entire guinea pig film. So, yeah, it was the guinea pig film. It wasn't his compilation. It was the guinea pig film because I had the guinea pig film. So and I think the way I got it was we would trade tapes with so many people. David E. Williams, who was the editor, editor in chief of Film Threat Video Guide, I believe he got the guinea pig film from Richard Kern or someone from the cinema of transgression. It might have been Nick Zed at the time. We were trading tapes with so many people. So so that's what I was doing, you know, rather and then the thing was is they would send me their weird tapes. So it really was the currency was weird videotapes. That's how we that's how we did all of this. And the movie in question, it was Flower of Flesh and Blood, right? It's like a sam a guy dressed up as a samurai. Yes, that's it. Samurai, yeah. So I was friends with Adam Rifkin, who uh, I'm still friends with him. Uh, he's he's really evolved into an exciting indie filmmaker. So so Adam Rifkin had made a a movie called Invisible Maniac which was basically an invisible man story kind of it was an invisible man horror film mixed with a TNA teen sex comedy. It was a guy who got invisible and basically felt up young women and they got naked in the movie. Um, there was actually an adult film actress whose name escapes me who starred in the invisible maniac. And that's how I met Adam. He made that film. Then he went off and directed the chase, 
with a Charlie Sheen. And then he worked on a film uh, called The Dark Backward. Um, and we were going to have that be our cover story for Film Threat, the first issue. And we covered the movie. It unfortunately just didn't make it to the cover. Um, we had to put something more mainstream on it, right? Uh, just to sell mags. But we still covered the movie extensively inside. But I became friends with Adam. And Adam and I, we would just get into deep discussions about like, you know, just weird videos and weird films we had seen. And, you know, back when I lived in Michigan in the eighties, I was obsessed with tracking down weird videos. And a lot of it was you would trade tapes with people. So for example, I was trading tapes with a guy named Steve Bissett, who was a comic illustrator for Swamp Thing working with, with Alan Moore. And he had sent me legend of the Overfiend which was not legally available in the United States. It's uh, one of the, one of the, it was the first hentai thing I'd ever seen. It was a hentai animated film feature, which was just bizarre. It was like part Akira with hentai. It was weird. So I, I loved Legend of the Overfiend. I thought it was fantastic. So Steve Bissett sent me that. And then I sent him weird tapes that I had made. I did a, a two-part series of films I called, um, I was inspired by William Burroughs. And William Burroughs had done a thing where he created a thing called cut up tapes. He would take audio and he would edit it. And with these weird contrasts, it'd be like a song and then, you know, some industrial machinery and then him reading poetry. And it was the, he created this, William Burroughs had created these bizarre series of audio cut up tapes. And I was so inspired by that. I thought that is weird. I'm going to do the video version of that. And so while I was in college, I was collecting like all this weird, these weird footage. Like I had, I had recorded every time someone who looked punk rock or new wave was on the news or in a TV show, I saved it. And I created a montage cathode fuck and TV sphincter were the names of the two tapes. And it was just weird stuff. I had like a McDonald's training film on courtesy and whatnot. And, and I intercut that with this punk rock footage. There was purpose behind it. That was like this whole culture of trading tapes was a big deal. And I gave, I gave Adam cathode fuck. I gave him TV sphincter. And he'd always ask me like, Hey, then he says to me, he goes, look, Charlie Sheen is really into these underground videos. He loves underground videos um how can we like like do you have anything and i was like one of the films that came to me um was a movie called guinea pig and i i promptly made a copy of it gave it to adam rifkin to give to charlie sheen so that pretty much clears up how charlie sheen came into possession of the guinea pig tape Although there have been a few alternate versions of this particular series of events, Chris Gore's version is the only one that could possibly be corroborated by others. Adam Rifkin and Charlie Sheen both could refute Gore's story, but to my knowledge, neither of them have despite ample opportunity to do so. As this is a story that has been a matter of public record since at least 2013, when Gore briefly recounted the incident on a track off his spoken word album, Celebrities Poop, titled Video Dealer True Story. The next lingering question left to answer about this whole incident is, 
How did the FBI get involved? Apparently, according to Adam Rifkin, he was so shocked. Charlie was so shocked upon watching this film. He was so taken aback, even though he'd been watching these weird underground VHS tapes, I was slipping to Adam. He thought he had witnessed an actual murder. So what Charlie Sheen ended up doing was he had a friend at the FBI. Well, what happened was they took it very seriously. The FBI said, you need to hand over the original tape. So um, after Charlie Sheen had reported this, I was contacted by the FBI after Adam gave them my phone number. I did an interview with the FBI discussing this tape. I handed over the original tape. And after a forensic analysis of the video, they determined that it was, in fact, fake. There's sort of this apocryphal story of Charlie Sheen appearing on 2020 talking about this that seems to originate from an article written by Scott Ehrenstein, who you might know as the author of like the Gorehound's Guide to Splatter Films and those kind of books. Do you remember anything like that happening or did you see this supposed 2020 episode? I don't know about the 2020 episode. I do remember that there was a news report and I just remember thinking, well, they're going to talk about film. I didn't even care about me. Right. I just cared about film threat. Like film. Come on. We need some press. We need press for film threat. Any press is good press at the time. Um, And this was a big news story and film threat wasn't a part of it. I wasn't a part of it. And that was disconcerting. Having said that um, there was a, there was a news story that broke. Basically, the the FBI had given Charlie Sheen uh, a, 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 like a good citizen commendation for turning over this video and for alerting the FBI to this. And it made it onto one of those magazine style exploitation shows like hard copy. None of, you know, my involvement in any of that or film threat was completely excised from the story the angle, the angle that they took for this news story on television was Charlie Sheen is a good citizen and a good person because he worked with the FBI and he helped them. Apart from the version of this part of the story provided by Weiser and Weiser in the Japanese cinema encyclopedia, which states that Sheen turned the tape over to the MPAA, who then turned it over to the FBI. The other accounts of how the tape made its way to the FBI seem to be in agreement with Gore's retelling of events, at least in terms of the barebone facts of it all. But each version has its own spin to it, either highlighting or minimizing different individuals' involvement and attributing different, sometimes nefarious motivations to the players involved. And it all seems to stem from the fact that, as I've discussed previously, the writers and publishers of these different indie mags didn't seem to like each other very much. So what was the relationship like between underground film magazines back then? Because in researching this, I've come across articles in Film Threat Video Guide, Blackest Heart, and Deep Red, where writers of one magazine are openly bashing writers of another magazine. And coming from the outside, is it's hard to tell if this was all an in-joke or was there genuine animosity between you guys back then? I think there was animosity with some of the other people. There wasn't with me. We became more of a target 
because in the space we were perceived to be among the better magazines. So, so we were always a target. We had a, a target on our back. I would kind of brush it off, make them look stupid by making a joke in my magazine and having the last word. And then that was it. But I would never actively go after someone because I thought that was kind of a waste. Like I don't want to actively go after some movie magazine, but if they send me something or try to fuck with me, I'll fuck with them back. But in a way that is funny because readers don't care about that. Like the readers of film thread do not care about any of this gossip BS drama, right? They don't, at the end of the day, they don't care. If I can turn it into something funny and a joke, that, that was always what my tactic was, was to just make it into a joke. I just wanted to be entertaining. I wanted film threat. I wanted people to read film threat cover to cover and with their mouth agape at, I can't believe a magazine is doing this. I want to sort of go back to the rivalry between film magazines, because in an issue of Blackest Heart, there's an article written by Sean Smith and Timothy Patrick, where they're really bad mouthing you personally, saying that basically you bought a copy of one of the guinea pig films from Chaz Ballin because you wanted to see about distributing it through Film Threat Video Guide. But when you realized that you weren't going to be able to get the distribution rights, you gave the film to Charlie Sheen and encouraged him to report it to the FBI as sort of a, a way to get back at Chaz Ballin. Is there any truth to that? That That is not true at all. That is completely false. I don't know why they would make that assumption. That seems pretty stupid. But no, I um, one, no, I didn't want to like, look, we wanted to distribute films legally in the U.S. where we knew the filmmaker. I didn't know who made guinea pig. So I know Richard Kern. I know Jorg Butgeret, right? Like I knew Steve Wang. It was filmmakers we knew who owned the movie. And those are the people, the filmmakers we dealt with. I didn't know the people who created guinea pig. And also that probably would have been a bridge too far for us because of the content of it. I mean, look, yes, even coming from me, I distributed at the time necromantic. Right. But, uh, it, you know, necromantic was it's obvious when you watch necromantic, it's a narrative film. It's a story, you know, it's a horror film shot in super eight, but, uh, yeah, uh, that's not true. That's someone who doesn't know anything, uh, coming up with some opinion about something they don't know anything about. Uh, I was there and yeah, I was not trying to do that. That's, um, that's uh, that's what they call make news, which make news is when you don't have the facts, you make up news. You fill in the gaps, but your assumptions are based on your biases, right? So they had a bias towards making me look bad. And so that's kind of how they how they couched that. That's pretty dumb. Look, professional jealousy and ankle biters have plagued me my entire career. My policy is always to just ignore idiots and uh they can try to keep up. I don't care um, because I have built film threat, the brand over the years. I've always been a target. I've always been a target and I don't care. I, I always say like, I, you know, I'm not trying to get into big fights with people, but at the time I recognized that I was definitely obnoxious. I was definitely pushing the limits in certain arenas and I pissed some people off. And you know, if you're in this space it may happen. So, and it happened. 
I think it's important to point out that Gore was in his early 20s when he founded Film Threat, and at least relative to other indie mags of the time, Film Threat was quite successful. He was the new kid on the block, and in his own words, was a bit obnoxious. And a lot of what Film Threat and Film Threat Video Guide were doing at the time was meant to push people's buttons. So it's no surprise that they actually did. I love going to conventions and I was there and sometimes, you know, some, I would catch people, you know, at the time going to conventions, then selling bootleg copies of movies that we were selling. And that was annoying to me because we got that we were sending money to the filmmakers and these bootleggers were not sending money to the filmmakers. I had heard that Chaz Ballin had beef with me um, and I didn't I didn't exactly understand why he had beef with me. But it sounds like Chaz looking at what he his work he had beef with a lot of people like he was there were some constant drama with him back in the day I was at a horror convention and Chaz Ballin was there and he tried to pour a beer on me I was at a horror convention in LA I heard that Chaz Ballin was there as a guest uh I'm like okay cool whatever and some some weird simpy fan found me and it's like oh I'm gonna go get Chaz Ballin it's just this wimpy kid and like, all right, well, cool. And Chaz Ballin, by the way, he's like, looks like a big biker at the time. I know he's passed away um, uh, years ago, but he was a big guy. I'm like, look, I'm not small. I'm 5'10", uh, uh, but, uh, you know, um, he's over six foot and looks like uh, a biker, dude. So, you know, there you go, which is fine. But he um he came up to me and he had a beer. He went to pour it on me. I deflected his hand and the beer spilled all over the simpy guy that got him. It was awesome. I could not have, you know, one of those things where it's like, you think of the thing you should have said in the moment or God, I should have done this instead of that. I actually did that thing. And it's one of the few times I could think like, oh my God, it worked out perfectly for me. He tried to went to pour a beer on me. I just, I just moved his hand a little bit and it went all over the dude who like went to get Chaz Ballin to tell on, you know, like Gore is here. Um, I mean, that was like, whatever people could have their different interpretations. I feel it's my obligation to tell you the truth as I see it happen to me. And I can only tell you the one side of my story. Like Chaz Ballin can talk about what an I was, or he can talk about like, he can make assumptions about what I was trying to do. Or I was trying, I wasn't trying to ruin anybody's life. I was trying to entertain, uh, Charlie Sheen via my buddy, Adam Rifkin. That's it. Like I was trying to give him a video. I didn't think much of it, um, at the time. So, and it's not like anybody went to prison over it. I mean, you know, they ended up basically determining, you know, it wasn't a real thing. So they still. Charlie Sheen came out looking like just a guy who likes to watch weird videos, I guess. And if you've ever seen Flower of Flesh and Blood and you're wondering how Charlie Sheen could have possibly mistaken it for a real snuff film, bear in mind this was the early 90s. The guinea pig films had never been released outside of Japan and the otaku murders didn't receive a lot of attention in the West. The number of people who knew about the guinea pig films, even in hardcore horror circles, was very small. Now, guinea pig, to be clear, is a Japanese fake snuff film. It is not real. However, if you've on VHS copied it, copied it, copied it, I can see how someone would 
mistake this for, you know, for a real snuff film. So after all this, what does the true version of events in the Charlie Sheen guinea pig affair look like? It goes something like this. The editor-in-chief of Film Threat Video Guide, David E. Williams, got a copy of Flower of Flesh and Blood via tape trading, possibly from Richard Kern or Nick Zed. David E. Williams gives Chris Gore a copy of that tape. Chris Gore gives a copy to Adam Rifkin. Adam Rifkin gives it to Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen gives it to the FBI. The FBI, like many other law enforcement agencies before them, determines that Flower of Flesh and Blood is not a real snuff film. The media catches wind of the incident and forms it into a story about a Hollywood actor being an upstanding citizen. Time passes and the public perception of Charlie Sheen drastically changes, so the story is now reframed as just another instance of Sheen's well-documented eccentricity. And the particulars and nuance of the story are all but lost to time, surviving only in the memories of the scant few people who were actually there. And it's a shame, really, because, at least in this case, the truth of the matter is much more interesting than the urban legend that was formed out of it. Mount Molehill is written, produced, and edited by me, Chris, with music by myself and Alex Bainter. A very special thank you to Chris Gore for sitting down for an interview with me. I'll post a link to the full interview in the show notes. Special thanks to DK from Nerds, Geeks, and the Kitchen Sink for helping me out, and to George from the Best Little Horror House in Philly, and Bones from the Five Day Rentals podcast for providing the voices of David E. Williams and Sean Smith. All other voices featured in this episode, apart from my own, are computer-generated. All of the sources used in this episode can be found in the show notes. If you have a molehill that you'd like me to turn into a mountain, whether it's a mystery that you just can't solve or just an interesting topic you'd like me to delve into, please reach out. You can email me at mountmolehillpodcast at gmail.com or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 505-218-6894. Follow us on Instagram to see updates and supplemental material for the show. Thanks for listening to the pilot season of Mount Molehill. Once again, thank you to anyone who has listened to the show or helped me out along the way. And if you'd like to hear more episodes of the show in the future, please just let me know. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.